0: Everyone loves a good underdog story. And it doesn't really matter whether you're cheering for a Cinderella team who you know defies all the odds and makes it to the championship game or the overlooked player who finally gets a chance to shine and all his hard work and determination and grit finally elevates him to a place of being a winner. We all want to pull for the little guy, for the underdog. And underdog stories are very inspiring because it shows the power of of the will, the power of just the hard work and determination, all these great things, these great virtues that, you know, we want to instill in ourselves and the people around us. And in many ways, Israel's story in the Old Testament is an underdog story. I mean, they're a small little nomadic tribe or group of tribes wandering in the desert out of uh, just recently freed from slavery. And then they enter a promised land, but they're surrounded by these massive national superpowers like Assyria in Babylon, and they've got these massive armies, and they're just dwarfing them in size and strength and power. And yet over and over again, Israel defeats larger armies, more powerful emperors, and they actually have the longest succession of kings, I think, in the history of the ancient world or of the world in general that comes from the same lineage of kings going all the way down all the kings of Judah. So it's a remarkable story against all odds, but there's one significant difference between a standard underdog story and Israel's underdog story. And it's this. Israel's success and victory comes not from their own power or their self-belief or their determination, but rather God's faithfulness to his promises. God is the X factor. God is the one that turns everything Uh, to favor Israel. They don't have any power or any might or any peace without God dwelling in their midst. That's what makes them special. That's who makes them special. And Zechariah chapter 9 tells the story not of underdog Israel who summons up the will against all odds to conquer their enemies, but rather it's a story of a gracious God who fights on behalf of weak, sinful pitiful Israel, and brings about her deliverance and her victory and her salvation. But even more shocking is that God not only protects Israel, but he starts to graft in their enemies as part of Israel. He starts to actually turn and convert enemies into adopted children. And we begin to see that the way that God works is he's not just working with this underdog team, and making them achieve more than they ever thought possible, but he's actually doing more than they could ask or think. He's using them, and through his people, he's grafting in the nations of the world into a kingdom far greater than anyone could ever imagine, with a king that surpasses all of our expectations. This is Understanding. Zechariah chapter 9 is a really key chapter, and you're going to see some familiar verses that are often quoted as prophecies of Christ, and we're going to see how those fit into the narrative that Zechariah is giving us. So it breaks down into three sections. First, a warning of judgment against the nations, that's verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9. Second, a promise of a humble king who brings peace, verses 9 9. To thirteen, And finally, a promise of future glory and salvation, verses 14 to 17. Let's begin with that first section. A warning of judgment against the nations, verses 1 to 8. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire." Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites." Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. In Zechariah chapter 9, God promises to humiliate all the superpowers that surround Israel. you got the Syrian cities of Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath, the independent kingdoms of Tyre and Sidon, and the Philistine cities of Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and, Ashdod. and these are all the major empires that cause a lot of trouble for Israel. Remember, Israel's strength is not in their military might or their political alliances or their material wealth. It's in God. Right? God's the only one who fights for them. And what we see is God is going to fight on their behalf. Tyre's wealth is going to get devoured by fire and that terrifies the neighboring Philistines. And then God then promises to devastate the Philistine city of Ashkelon, and the devastation is so complete that foreigners actually come in and intermix and take over and breaks down the pagan sort of uh, uh, culture that, that is there. And And the mighty Philistine empire falls to its knees. And these events happen when Alexander the Great conquers these nations as he tramples through the Mediterranean, tramples through the ancient Near East and constructs the powerful Greek empire. Now that might've thrown you for a loop. You're like, wait a minute. I thought we're talking about the Bible. We're not talking about history. Why are you talking about Alexander the Great? This is the Jewish Bible. Why is he in a book of Jewish prophecy? What's going on? Well, this is odd to us because when we think about God acting, We're fighting. We think about the spiritual world up there, or we think about him doing maybe supernatural, miraculous things like the Exodus. And though God certainly acts in those miraculous ways, oftentimes he acts through the events of history. And this really challenges us. History is not just thing after thing after thing that happens. And then God every once in a while intervenes. All of history is under the sovereignty of God. Right? And you even see in the Old Testament, God will deliver his people through the actions of pagans. Right? He uses Cyrus the Great to release Israel from exile. He even refers to him as his anointed king, his Messiah, using that kind of language in Isaiah 45.1. So scripture helps to see that all of human history is superintended by God. It's the outworking of God's purposes. As, as corny as it sounds, history is his story. And prophecy helps us see that. It doesn't allow us just to have abstract ideas and thoughts and vibes about spiritual floaty world up there. No, God is superintending. He's, he's orchestrating all events in history to, to fulfill his redemptive purposes. And even Alexander the Great is under the sovereignty of God. He's not exempt from that. Every ruler, every king, God holds in his hand and directs their paths. And so God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. Alexander didn't wake up one day and go, I want to fulfill the will of Yahweh. No, he's going out to conquer, to do his thing, but that doesn't really matter because God, again, is the author of all history. He works through kings and conquerors to fulfill his plans. And so Alexander's conquest of Philistia and and the surrounding nations to build the Greek empire, it fulfills the purposes of God to break down the pagan practices of Philistia. Those pagan practices are described as Them having blood from their mouth and abominations from from their teeth, that's describing paganism. Paganism is not just this cute kind of native religion. It is bloody, it is gory, it is very perverse. And through Alexander, God is bringing judgment. He's using Alexander as an instrument of his judgment, but also as an instrument of purification. So, of course, God can use anyone in history, even pagans. In fact, he uses pagans a lot in the Old Testament, as we pointed out earlier with Cyrus the Great, Of Persia. In fact, he's the one who ends the exile. And he's the reason that Zechariah is even talking to returned exiles, because a pagan king conquered Babylon and then inherited Israel and then said, Israel, you can go back and, and build your kingdom. So we want to look at history as truly his story, as God working through people to accomplish his purposes. And this breakdown of Philistia, actually, it's so complete that foreigners start to come in. And the Philistines, that empire breaks down, that kingdom breaks down. And it actually creates fertile soil. And there's a hint that this is going to create true worship of God. Because God says something crazy. He says, I'm going to take away its blood from its mouth and the abominations from between its teeth. And it too shall be a, and here's the key word, a remnant for our God. It'll be like a clan in Judah. Ekron, which is one of the Philistine cities, it's going to be like the Jebusites. Okay, so these references are really key. The word remnant refers only to the faithful believers in Israel, those who do not bow the knee to Baal, right? The remnant are the faithful ones. And yet here, in a strange way, it's being applied to people who aren't ethnically Israelites. It's being applied to the descendants of the Philistines. In other words, the terminology of, of the remnant of faithful Israelites will extend beyond ethnic Jews to Gentiles, to former pagans who will be united by their True worship. In fact, they're going to be considered like a clan in Judah. They're going to be like one of the tribes of Israel. And there's a reference that Ekron, the city, will be like the Jebusites. Now, the Jebusites—they were Canaanite pagans. So when Israel first entered the land with Joshua, they were already people there. They were the Canaanites. It's called the Promised Land. It's called a land of Canaan. And Joshua was supposed to clear them out. Israel didn't fulfill that mission. and So there are these people called the Jebusites, these pagans who are just kind of hanging around until David finally conquers them. And when he conquers them, they assimilate and they become part of Israel. And uh, Jebusite, that's actually the beginning of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a Jebusite town and it became the capital of Israel. So I think the, the parallel here is saying that these cities that are once pagan will become part of God's city. We become part of God's people. These people who were pagans will now be people of God. That enemies become family. And you can see this in the letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 2, verse 19, when Paul writes to Gentile believers, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I think the New Testament is fulfilling this vision in Zechariah. Right? That that, that through the redemptive power of Christ, one new man is formed out of two. Jew and Gentile are now united by something deeper than blood, by common belief, by a common faith in the Messiah. God has always desired a multinational people bound not by blood, but by worship. And that's the vision here. Now, every kingdom needs a king. And we're going to see the identity of this king in the next section. It's verses 9, 9, uh, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit." Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So here's a famous passage about this future coming king, this Messiah figure. And we learn a couple things about him. Uh, he He is someone who comes humbly with righteousness and salvation on a donkey. Second, he's he's someone who brings about peace among the nations, negating the need for chariots or war horses. Third, his reign frees prisoners from a waterless pit and restores their fortunes. Fourth, he utilizes Israel as a bow and arrow against the kingdom of Greece, which again, if you put those together, you start to see that there's this sort of composite image of Alexander, but he doesn't fully fulfill this. And, And a lot of commentators debate who this is immediately being fulfilled by. So again, sometimes we can punt too quickly to Jesus, and we have to remember the way prophecy works. Oftentimes, prophecy will have a near historical fulfillment and then a far historical fulfillment that's even greater. So to give an example, um, Isaiah prophesies about a kid named Emmanuel who will be born, and he's a sign of salvation to Israel. Well, there actually was a kid named Emmanuel born in, in the short uh, uh, shortly after that that prophecy, but that's not the end, because later on in the Gospels, we see that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. He's the fulfillment of that, a future, further in the future, greater fulfillment. So, so think about prophecy as there's the near fulfillment and then a far fulfillment that's greater. There's a twofold kind of fulfillment, or you could say a partial fulfillment and then a full fulfillment. If you want to think about that. So again, this is a little bit of speculation, but the reference to Greece kind of historically roots this. So it could very well be... That the initial fulfillment of this coming king is Alexander the Great. Okay? And the reason I say that is because uh, his, his conquest brought peace to the world, right? Because he's conquering all these nations, so they're no longer fighting one another. Okay? And many people saw him as a great peacemaker. I mean, he constructed, I mean, he conquered <laughs> like the whole Mediterranean, he ruled over a massive empire of unparalleled might, uh, at least for the time. And it brings about this kind of revolution where there's, kind of a, there's, there's a peace, there's security for the first time. But the prophecy also says that Judah and Ephraim, now Judah, that those are two tribe names that stand in as a representative for northern and southern Israel. Remember, uh, northern and southern Israel, there was a split after Solomon's reign. And northern Israel can be called Ephraim, and southern Israel is referred to as Judah, the kingdom of Judah. And so those once divided tribes are now going to find some kind of reunification, and they're going to actually stand against Greece. the empire of Alexander. Again, the underdog is going to get the upper hand because why? Because God fights for them. Now, some commentators view the reference to God bending Judah as a bow and Ephraim as an arrow to what's called the Maccabean Revolt. And that's an event that happened about 160 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And in that event, some zealous Jews rose up against the Greek empire, recaptured Jerusalem, and reconsecrated the temple. It was this massive revolution and it's actually where you get uh, the the where you get the um, holiday of hanukkah from it's it's derived from that period and that event so this might be again that might be the near fulfillment of this where where israel is is used as god's weapon to actually uh, uh, secure a victory against greece okay but the Maccabean revolt doesn't bring about You know the sovereignty of Israel, because after Alexander's destroyed, after he's beaten, Rome takes over. So the Maccabean revolt can't be the final sort of victory that they're looking at. Again, it's a near fulfillment. There's a future greater victory happening that's going to uh, fulfill these things. And, and, And Alexander isn't the ultimate fulfillment of this coming king, because the peace he brings is a worldly kind of peace. The real peace is going to come from a future greater king. And we see that. We see who that future greater king is. The Gospels record Jesus' entering Jerusalem on a donkey, very self-aware about the prophetic implications of this. I mean, they're like, this is it. This is the coming king, right? They, they see Jesus entering into Jerusalem on the donkey, you know, on Palm Sunday as the fulfillment of this prophecy. And you can imagine all those people that are laying the palms and, and they're excited because they're like, we've read Zechariah. This is the guy. He's going to bring righteousness, salvation. He's on a donkey. He fits the part. He's going to go in. He's going to kick out the Romans. He's going to restore the... The kingdom of Israel, it's going to be great. And yet, what happens? He dies on a cross. So what happens to this world peace? What happens to this double restoration? What about the the prisoners set free? This is a great mystery. And we're going to see that it's actually through his death that the great victory comes. So this next part is verses 14 to 17. Uh, This is talking about the Lord's salvation. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bull, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty! Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. So again, we see this prophetic language of God's day of saving. He's going to do something so decisive it's going to bring deliverance and peace and prosperity to his people. And I think this happens through the resurrection. So the death of Christ is actually the way that God fulfills his purposes because it's through death that he conquers death and really through the resurrection that he brings about all these blessings, right? So what Zechariah is seeing in a fuzzy form Jesus Christ's death and resurrection brings into into clarity. The Maccabean revolt, the conquest of Alexander, they're precursors of the final victory of God and the great King of God. And the phrase, sound the trumpet, it always refers to the judgment of God in which he brings about salvation and deliverance. And throughout the Old Testament, you get hints of God's act of judgment and salvation in what's called a day of the Lord or the coming of the Lord. And the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, it's, it's usually, it's a historic event in which God judges Israel's enemies and delivers Israel from its suffering. And these are little breadcrumbs that lead forward to a future eschatological, which simply means end times, end of history, final judgment, where God judges all creatures and God brings about a total renewal of creation. Okay, And these historical little breadcrumbs are pointing forward like signposts to that final day. So that's really important to remember. Again, prophecy tells in fuzzy shapes what history and further revelation will reveal in clarity. Now we see Jesus say in Matthew 24, 31, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I think this is referring to Jesus's second coming, where there's going to be this great victory led by him, the the glorified king. And so, again, one of the difficult things is when you read the prophecy, you think Messiah is going to come, times are going to be great, judgment falls, it all happens at once. But as we've been learning through prophecy, it doesn't work that way. That there is actually time in between. It's not all happening at once, but they come in phases. So the Lord, the Messiah comes, but he doesn't immediately conquer, he dies. And then he raises and he ascends the right hand of God, in which he has he, which, which he has dominion over the nations, so Jesus is reigning in heaven, he's resurrected, the sign that he is the risen king, and now he's ruling from heaven over the nations, but the nations don't all bow down yet. That's got to happen progressively through time as the gospel goes forth. So just to keep it in mind, when you see it really flat in these prophecies, like it all happens at once, oftentimes it's not true. It's it's a flat image for the original audience, but as time and history unveil, you realize it's actually three-dimensional, or or, or again, the mountain rage illustration I've used before. From a distance, two mountains look like they're right on top of each other, but when you get close, you realize there's miles in between those mountains. That's kind of what's happening here. Now, all that to say, Zechariah is viewing, again, probably the Maccabean revolt and Alexander, because all history is his story. God works through historical events to accomplish his purposes. But these themselves are pointers to future historical events that God is going to do, primarily in Jesus Christ being the true righteous king who comes humbly on a cult. And then he's the one who brings about restoration. He's the one who brings about salvation, not just for Israel, but for the nations of the world, that even Philistines in Christ can become grafted in and be like a clan of Judah, be part of God's true people. And again, it happens not because of our righteousness or our power, but because of the power of the Messiah who comes and saves us. The people whom God fights for are precisely those who can't fight for themselves, who can't dig themselves out of their moral corruption, who rely on the goodness of God, the power of God. He's the one who fights on our behalf. And so the Lord is going to come. Yahweh comes and we await that day when he brings about his final deliverance. And all the prior comings are pointing to that final coming. And so we wait we know that Christ has ascended, Christ reigns, but the final fulfillment of this restoration in which young men flourish and there's the new wine, the young women, the, 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 the flock of this people dwelling in ultimate peace, that is still going to be fulfilled in the future and even in our future. That's not fully here until the return of Christ and the resurrection of all things. But we can have hope because if God was faithful in the past, if he's faithful in phase one, two, and three, we know he'll be faithful in phase four, right? And that's the power of scripture. We look through, all the kings of the earth are under the sovereign rule of Christ. Nothing can thwart his plans. Nothing can stop his good purposes for his people.